We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Okay, ready? what you know and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to know something she's on. I'll think about baby, won't you need it? I'll hold in it. Things are moving real now. I'll have you seen you wanting you. Hey. It's her ratio. Okay, though. It's her ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> Tell me something that you said that now you're like, I, I don't know how I survived telling that joke. I was getting into it with someone and going back and forth. And I was like, hey, man, don't let this Hollywood shit fool you. You know, I'm a nigga first. We can go. <laughs> you're saying, said, this, you're saying this to a, to a, to a gangbanger. Yeah. This, 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 I was stupid. I was, I was taking my life in my own hands. I told you I was naive back then. I wouldn't dare do that today. <laughs> like I wouldn't even think about doing that today. But I'm young out of St. Louis and didn't know any better. And then it's funny because during this documentary, I, we have my security, who I had people not on personal security, but the guys I had uh, club security, you know. And and they told me they said, "Man, we saved your ass a lot of nights. It was cats, you know. Like, hey man, you better get your boy. You better get your boy." <laughs> so I appreciate. You know, the security team I had back then, man. And God, because, I mean, I, t- I used to talk so much shit, man. But that kind so of much. fearlessness is what separates a good comedian from a great comedian. It's funny you say that because um, that's one of the things Shaq would say when he came. He said, man, you don't care who it is. You're going to go after them. Celebrity, gangbang, you don't care. And that's just, it's not, not anything I think about. It says, if I see something, I gotta be true to the, to the moment. The comic gods have put this in my lap. I'm gonna talk about you. Guy Tory is a legendary comedian who arrived in LA from St. Louis and said, Where can the black people perform in this town? 
And he went out and created a night called Fat Tuesdays that changed the comedy game for black people in the 90s. Now there's a new documentary called Fat Tuesdays directed by my man Reggie Hudlin that breaks down that whole environment. It's an awesome doc. Definitely check it out. We're going into that and much more right now with Guy Tory on Torre Show. So tell me about what you were doing during the L.A. riots. What did you come up on? Did you get a TV? Man, you know what? The L.A. riots for me, I I wish I would have. I was still in St. Louis. Okay. I had already planned to move to L.A. And I was at a happy hour. And my roommate, my college roommate and I were watching it on TV like, what the hell is going on? And he was like, are you still moving to L.A.? I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> I hope they still got some stuff. <laughs> it didn't It didn't scare you off of L.A. at all? Not my group in St. Louis. <laughs> that ain't nothing. You heard all the songs. St. Louis, what they corners back. Man, come on. This <laughs> is rough. St. Louis is just like Compton. You heard all the hip-hop songs. <laughs> Ice Cube told us what's up. So, yes. so, so, how does the LA riots lead to Fat Tuesday? Very good question, man. I was actually, when I was started working on it, and I was just thinking about, you know, the diet. This is like 13 years ago I started on this journey, uh, underground for the first nine. And, you know, I was like, you know what? If it wasn't for Rodney King, there wouldn't have been a Fat Tuesday. And it would have been a Fat Tuesdays. A lot of people that discovered that Fat Tuesdays probably wouldn't have happened. And I actually had an interview set up with Rodney King. He had a book signing at SO One Books down on the Mert Park, which is right around the corner from the Comedy Act Theater, I've been which to, is where I, I started. I've been to SO One. Yeah. Uh, myself and Bishop Moore, who's, who was my um, DP at the time, and uh, director for The Sizzle, you know, he we went down there and asked Rodney if he would be in the documentary. And, and I was going to have him saying, it wasn't for me, there'd be no guy toy. There'd be no, you know, Nick Cannon and such and such. So he said, okay, he'll do it. And then two weeks later, he passed away. And I was like, wow, man, I really, really should have upped the shooting schedule. <laughs> but we didn't get a chance to get him, but that, that, was, that hit me. But I say that because had the Rodney King riots not have happened, the, 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 the commies at theater would have still maybe been that place where Hollywood wasn't scared to come see Black Town. And when I moved out there in 92, uh, the Comedy Act Theater, which was the cotton club for comedy, the heyday for Black comedy in Los Angeles, it wasn't that, that, that thing anymore. It wasn't that shiny new toy anymore. So I saw the void and was like, you know what? I got to do something. I'll take the hood to Hollywood and showcase Black comedians because there's too much untapped talent down here. So because of the L.A. riots, white people were afraid to come down to that side of of the of the of of L.A. So, so black people, black comics, especially, were not getting the looks that they had been getting before. No, they weren't getting. I mean, you know, it, it was the way it was back then. You know, the, the big three comic clubs in, in Hollywood, Comedy Store, Laugh Factory, Improv. And if you really weren't a big name, a big black name, uh, you weren't really seeing that many parts of the stage. 
And so we're relegated to doing comedy in our neighborhoods, which is which is dangerous because in these neighborhoods it's it's, it's gang affiliated and gang uh they they like to laugh too. Gang bangers like to laugh too. And gang bangers like to heckle. But you're not so, but you're not getting the scouts, you're not getting right. the producers showing right. up over there. So you're not getting the look to maybe he can do a sitcom. Maybe he can be in my movie. So that's right. That's the, that's what's really lacking. Exactly. And the celebrities, black celebrities quit coming too, because they saw what was going on down there. And, and that's what draws people to to shows. I mean, that's what, that was a magic of fat Tuesdays, having celebrities in there and people walking around every week, seeing an A-lister or icon or a legend that helps the attendance. So the comedy act theater was no different. You know, back then you had Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and, and Moses Malone and Eddie Murphy going to the Common Act Theater. So once they left and once the, the riots happened and, and Hollywood wasn't coming, it became a ghost town. So how did you, because I know the it was the comedy store where you were doing this, right? Absolutely. So I, I, I know they weren't like open arms, like, sure, let's do a black night. So you go to them relatively new in town, not a big established name and you get at all and and you get them to say, okay, you can do a black. How did you get them to say, okay, you can do a black night? Well, here's the thing. Uh, The comedy store is out of the three clubs is actually the club that takes the comedians that nobody else wants. Okay. That's why you had a Yachnar Smirnoff and a, a, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Andy Kaufman and, they took the screwballs. They took all the zany people, man, that nobody really wanted. The other clubs were, were too buttoned up. And the comedy store was like the Statue of Liberty. Bring me your crazy. Bring me your, your tired. Bring me whatever. Just bring me the funny people. And, you know, your Jim Carrey's. That, that's the comedy store was that was known for that. And then Mitzi loved Richard Pryor, you know. And also Eddie Griffin attempted. Mitzi Shore. Mitzi Shore owns yep. a comedy store. Yep. Yep. Um, yes. Yeah. And. Eddie Griffin did attempt to do his own night there at the comedy store. Wait, go back for a second. She was, she was very close with Richard Pryor and she loved yeah. him, which is part yes. of why she was more open to let's have a bunch of black comics than the others, than the other places, the other clubs. Right. Right. And then Eddie Griffin had his night and Mamie Ali even had a, light, a night up there. Um, and so it, they didn't last, but that did open the door for me to come in and say, Hey, let me try my black night, you know? And at the time... Why the did she say yes to you? You know, it was a relationship with my manager at the time, Worthy Patterson, and the Scott Day, who was, I think, the GM of the talent booker at the comedy store. And they had a relationship. So my, my manager at the time, uh, Worthy Patterson, went to Scott Day, and Scott Day was like, okay, yeah, we'll get February. It just happened to be Black History Month, too. So... <laughs> So that, I mean, I'm sure that probably helped too. And the comedy store needed needed some life to be uh, um, back into. But you also did you ask for Tuesday or did they give you Tuesday? No, because Tuesday was the weakest night of the of the week, right? It's probably the only night they had open, you know, because uh, <laughs> it was, was almost seven days a week, and it was the belly room because the comedy store has three rooms. For people who people don't know, it's the belly room that holds like ninety people. It's the original room which holds like 200 people. And then you have the main room that holds 400. So it was the belly room, which I think they use as an incubator. And, you know, they gave me that night and I was going to make it, you know, make it do what it do. So they gave you the weakest night and the smallest room. 
Yes. <laughs> but you're like, I'm, yes. I, I, I got something. I'm in here. Yeah. And you know what? They could have given me a damn broom closet. I'd have made that work. They could have given me the bathroom. I'd have been standing on the toilet telling jokes. <laughs> was it originally like one shot? Like we're going to do this once? Or was there an expectation of like, we're going to make this a thing? No, it was like you got February. So you got February to make it work. So we'll give you four Tuesdays in February. Four Tuesdays in Black History Month will get your black ass out of here. <laughs> so what did you do to promote it and market it so that you had hot comedians, you had, you know, some celebrities in the crowd, you had the room filled? What, what did you do? Well, first of all, I caught lightning in a bottle because there was really no room like that, no comedy room in, in Hollywood like that. And I had, my sister was in town, Malaka Tori, she was in town visiting, so she helped me pass out flyers. Uh, another comedian buddy of mine, Danny Green, who was up and coming as well, we were kind of like comedy buddies, and he would help me pass out flyers, and I'd bounce ideas off of him. And and so we, we just made it work, and I was making the flyers myself. Like, I was a PA on a Martin show, so I knew how to work my way around a copy room. And, and, and how to, you know, make flyers and stuff like that. So I was making the flyers myself and we were passing out flyers. We were going to movie theaters and picking out couples and like, hey, man, you got a beautiful woman right there. I know she loves the lab. Why don't you bring her to this comedy show? So putting couples on the spot and targeting women. And, and that's how it happens. And it was just word of mouth. At first, you know, the first couple, about the first 40 minutes, I was a little nervous, you know, because people weren't showing up. Then I remember, oh, it's, it's black people. <laughs> They're going to show up. They're just going to show up late. Who were, so, the, like who were the comics who were there that first night? That first night, man, people like Honest John, you know, people like a um, guy named Eurasy, names that you really didn't even know, you know, until later. But then when it started casing steam, then you had your Bill Bellamy's, Joe Torres, your Chris Tucker's, your Alex Thomas's, your Dow Heath's. Your, you know, you had Arsenio in the audience. You had Dr. Dre coming. You, then you had, you know, got bigger. And then Tupac would come and bring all of Compton with him. And it was, it was, it became, it became the word around town. Because again, it was no social media. I had right. no advertising budget, but my own pocket. I had no, no financial backers. So it was just word of mouth. And I think there was nothing else like it. So it wasn't just me. And then when people hear that Dr. Dre was in there and Snoop was in there and Tupac was there, then it started taking notice. But when Suge started coming, and I found out later when, when Suge was coming on a regular basis, some of the industry stopped coming. Because they were like, you know, at that time, this is 95. This is, you know, the height of Death Row and Suge Knight. and you know, he was this monster. So, uh, industry quit coming. Yo, Suge Knight at that time was extremely scary. <laughs> I remember telling this one uh, A&R guy who you probably know, yo, I want to do an interview with Suge. I want to do a story on Suge. And he was like, yo, money, you don't want to be anywhere near Suge. Like, don't, <laughs> don't talk to him. Just leave him alone. Don't even go anywhere near him. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know you're fearless like me, man. Because I had met Suge there, I didn't know who he was. I knew the name, but this is '95. There's no Twitter and no Instagram, and really, no one had the internet like that. And you know, I'm from St. Louis. I know the name, but I don't know what he looked like. And I was going in on, him. like you wouldn't believe. 
you were making and, fun of him from the stage. Oh yeah. What would yeah, you say? A, what were you saying? Man, it was a big, big old dude with a plaid shirt on, looked like a big brawny, big Negro brawny paper towel dude. <laughs> you know, I was just going in, and, and I don't think he 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 didn't know I didn't know who he was. He just thought I was crazy. Because one of the security guys that had worked in the door came and said, man, you guys from St. Louis are nuts. I said, why? He said, the way you was talking about Sugar, like that. I said, Sugar was there? <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, it's funny, man, because I want, there was somebody wanted to do a roast. I think it was K-Day back in the day. He wanted to do a roast and wanted to roast Sugar. And I was like, ooh, I want to host it. And I was married at the time. She was like, are you crazy? I said, no, nah, I want to host a roast. Yeah, I want to host a Sugar Night Roast, man. So I was fearless. You were fearless. And that's one of the things I think that made Fat Tuesdays um, so great to come to, too, is because I allowed comics to be themselves. I didn't censor them at all. I had one rule, no rape jokes. Right. Other than that, be yourself. Women can be themselves. Guys can be themselves. Gays can be themselves. Transgenders can be themselves. Just be funny. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first 
true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I, I know you had an incredible lineup of people who came through, but I know y'all talk about like who really killed it. Like who's to like two of the three people who like most destroyed the stage. Man, Chris Tucker, JB Smooth, Cedric the Entertainer, Chris Rock when he would drop in, Chappelle when he would drop in, Bob Saget a couple of times when he would drop in. I mean, he, uh, uh, Mike Epps. I mean, these guys would come through and just leave the room smoking. Melanie Camacho, Lunell. They all would come in and just smack. Russell Peters even got on stage a couple of times. But it, it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was that night, man, where people came and, and just destroyed. Yo, I, I, I when, when, when you see young Chris Tucker looking thin like a crackhead <laughs> with that high voice, he's killing it, right? And just the Ooh. voice is funny, but the material yeah. is already there. Chris Tucker was one of those other comedians, man. And there was a few that when he went on stage, people would, in the halls or in the bathroom, would hurry up and come out. Comics would, you know, pay attention. Because usually you're in the back talking. Somebody's on stage. You're not paying attention. You know? Those comedians like Chris Tucker and Chappelle and Chris Rock and 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 um, and um, J.B. Smooth and would come on stage, man. And people were like, oh, hey, oh, hey. They're hey, going up. Uh, uh, uh. I got. I want to see the set. So, how old is Chappelle in this period? This early '90 period you're talking about? I think I'm a little older than Chappelle. Uh, he's got to be in his late twenties, thirties. Because he was because maybe, maybe, maybe mid mid twenties. Because he was still rising. That right? He hadn't had a a, a big cable hour long special at that point, right? right? Could right. you? But he, you could already had a couple of sets on TV. He may have done. He, he may have already done Robin Hood and Tights. Okay, you know, but may you have done have baked at the time. Could you already see the brilliance? Yeah, man. I, I went back and looked at some of old Chappelle when he was a teenager, and you see it then. He has this joke about uh, Batman, and uh, you know, it's something something about Batman wouldn't come to the hood because if he was in the hood. Once they come back to the car, he'd be asking Robin, hey, let me park the car right here. <laughs> I can't tell the way Chappelle told it. But at that young of an age, man, you saw the genius in it. See, one of the things about Chappelle, a lot of people will tell jokes that if you have a little bit of a memory, you can transport it. You can, hey, you know, so-and-so did this joke, right? You can remember it. He does stories to where, like, I can't, I can't retell you a twenty-minute story, and there's a callback that's important, and it relates back right. to my, the baby on the corner who's selling right. crack. I can't tell you the story, right. like, is it twenty? Right. You know, the fucking Bill Cosby. I can't tell you the whole story. Right. Um, right. That's that's part of what kills for me. I was actually, I think, I don't know if I saw you. I was at um, Mooney's uh, memorial, um, Paul Mooney's memorial. That that was the last time I was in L.A. Were you at that? I had the M- it may have been Joe, my brother. Yeah, Joe. It may have been Joe. Um, <clears throat> so the angry. 
Why? Why? Why you say that? The angrier, bitter, bitter, bitter. <laughs> yeah. Joe, Joe always has a scowl on his face. Like he's so unapproachable. People are like, "Oh my God, your brother! I'm, I'm so scared by him. I'm so intimidating." You know, he's got the muscles and he's always frowning and chewing gum, like like the baby from The Simpson. Mouth always. It's like, stop, stop, Joe, stop. <laughs> what? <laughs> the court existence is over, Joe. They said cut a long time ago. You lose the attitude. What what is going on there? What can what can we do to like you know get everybody back together, man? What's going on? This ain't the Blues Brothers. We got the band back together. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying, what, what can we what can we do to 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 you know to bring everybody back together in the family? Hey, man, some families just ain't gonna make. It. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's not in the cards. I mean, we're cordial, but you know, it is what it is. I don't I don't shy away from it. I don't you know. It's to be continued. We have our moments. We have our good moments. We have our moments where, you know, it's like, go to your corner, go to my corner. You know, it's, uh, yeah. Did something happen or was it long simmering? Yeah, I started working. <laughs> <laughs> but that was poor little guy with the raggedy teeth and, you know, living with my brother. It was like, it was all good. But once I moved out and, you know, I just started, you know, because Tupac was always in my ear telling me to create my own lane, you know. He was always telling me, get out your brother's shadow. And I've always had that position with my older siblings. Whatever they did, I, I followed in the footsteps and did just as well, if not better. So it was, to me, always a healthy competition because they set the bar and they gave me something to reach toward. So I don't know, man. It's just one, one you know, it started going, you know, like, <laughs> like, a, like, you know, when you see a spaceship go up and then, you know, the big part falls off and the other one keeps going. <laughs> That's how it seemed like it was, man. And, you know, we're, 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 I saw him last night, actually, man. At my, I have a nephew now. His son is doing stand-up now. Oh, wow. And he has a night inspired by Fat Tuesdays called Trippy Tuesdays. And I wanted to check him out last night, my nephew and Joe. I didn't know Joe was coming. And uh, I probably would stay home. But, uh, no, uh, Joe <laughs> <laughs> had some cool moments like that. So it's, you know. It but, it's, it but it sounds like when you become, from what you're saying, when you become a man and you become a comedian and somebody, right? I mean, instead of like, you know, needing him, but like you stand on your own too. And he's like, now you're threatening me. Now I'm like, and eh, leave me alone. Yeah, you see it in the doc. You see, you hear other people talk about it in the documentary. Even before I started anything, it was always like, he was shocked that I was getting into stand up. And because I was never the funny one in the house. I was a silly one, one of the funny one, because Joe was always, you know, alpha male, you know, older brother, blah, blah, blah. But at school, on a school bus, on, on the college campus, at work in the break rooms, oh, I was Eddie Murphy. <laughs> I was surprised. You know, I was, I was, I was all of it. I was Bill Cosby without pills. I was that dude. You know, I was free pill bill. <laughs> And, and I made people laugh, man. And especially on the school bus, man, that's where it starts. In St. Louis, you ride the school bus, you got an hour ride. And and I was sitting in the back. Me and my friends were sitting in the back, man. And as soon as you got on that bus, you walk down the aisle, it was like a catwalk. <laughs> and if your gear was whack, you got served. They call it bullying now. But back then, 
you got served. And that's how you earned your stripes, but that's where you developed that quickness. That's why you developed that, you know, the improv. And, and it works today when I'm on stage and I'm in a crowd and I get a heckler or I see something, you know, I got I got to go at it. So the, it's like the, terminating. The school bus was your incubator where you're making fun of other people. Yes. Yes. I was a four two bully. <laughs> <laughs> I was the shortest one on the bus. But I was but it was just that's that's what we but, did. But you were we quick, but you were quicker mentally than everybody else so you could say that funny thing and keep everybody laughing funny story someone asked me one time in an interview when was the first time you remember making someone laugh and i had to be maybe six or seven years old and we lived in new york before st louis and we lived in jamaica queens on woodhall avenue and we had an aunt who was like a nanny and she'd made breakfast and she cooked had scrambled eggs Bacon and grits, right? And I ate all my bacon. I ate all the eggs. Hadn't touched the grits, right? Looked like fresh falling snow. And she goes, my aunt goes, I'm Polly. She goes, boy, you ate all your food. You ain't, you ain't touched your grits. And at six, seven years old, I went, I'm touching it now. <laughs> and start poking in the grits, man. And she reared back, backhand, right? And then burst out laughing. And then my siblings burst out laughing too. <laughs> and that's the first time I can remember making someone laugh. Hey, Siri, pause. I didn't say Siri and she turned on. <laughs> my home pod. Listen. Listening. But yeah, that's the first time I can remember making someone laugh, man, is, is, is my Aunt Polly and my siblings at the breakfast table. Yo, tell so me. that quick hit again. And, and all of it's quick way to just being a smart ass. But I always had a smart mouth and talk back. I always got bad grades in school for, and, and conduct because I always had to have the last word. <laughs> you know? Were you making the teachers laugh in the classroom or just the students? Some of them. Some of them. Some of them. Some of them, you know, you can see them hold it in like, like, like weed smoke. <laughs> like you smoking with Snoop. But, but yeah, you know, because I was... I was, you know, a cute little kid. I, I don't know what happened when I grew up. I was a cute little kid with bushy hair, dimples, with, you know, uh, with, with a big raggedy tooth smile. And people used to call my brother and I Rodney, Rodney Allen Ripley back then. We had the apple <laughs> the dark. So he was a cute kid. So, you know, my manager told me one time, I had a manager one time, he said, you get away with saying some of the most, you know, racist, uh, crude, obnoxious stuff on stage because he said you 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 flash that smile and those dimples and it, it, it takes all what you just said, it takes it away. And I never realized that. I, don't, I didn't realize I was doing that on purpose. It's just, you know, and, and this is the thing I think about the whole cancel culture thing. And people are going after comedians and, and things like that. But what they what's getting lost is, is the intent. When we talk about someone, like we're playing the dozens on the school bus, on campus, on the schoolyard, in the lunchrooms, whatever, there was no intent for to, to hurt, make, hurt someone's feelings or, or no malice behind it. We're just having fun. And it, even as comedians, the intent is not to make you feel bad. We just see the world in, a, in our way, and we tell it in our way, it, and we're not, we don't mean it any mean intent. 
Now, some people do, and most of them are not comedians. So you don't put us in that same boat and don't try to cancel us. And, that, and that's crazy with this whole cancel culture stuff. I agree. Wait, tell me about being friends with Tupac. Well, Joe was friends with him. Joe did the movie Poetic Justice with him. So I met him um, through Joe. And I met him on the Sony lot with Columbia Pictures back then in 92. Uh, I met him then, but he was, he loved to laugh, man. He loved coming to comedy shows. He, uh, he was that Gemini. He didn't know which pocket he was getting. And he was just always in my ear, giving me advice like on, what? on entertainment. On entertainment. Like, what did, like, 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 what did he say? Like, get out your brother's shadow, create your own it. You know, and he always say, man, find your thing. Find your thing. Find the thing that's going to set you apart from your brother and everybody else. And 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 I always always remembered that and never forgot that. So I always worked on that thing and and always loved writing, you know. And 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 like Joe's Joe's very funny, but Joe's very confident, right? I don't have the confidence that my brother has, so the arrogance that my brother has. So I I I'm a prepare, I like to prepare. I, I'm all about prep. So I'm gonna write and make sure when I go on stage, yeah, someone's gonna be improv. But I'm definitely gonna have a skeleton, uh, a guide, a guideline to go with. And if I get off track, then I'll, I'll use my natural skills. But that's the difference between me, and Joe, and I. And you know, I think our work ethics are different. So wait, so you said you? He said develop your it. So what is your thing like that that he was talking about? You know, I think my thing is this: one is un- unapologetic, and just being fearless and saying the things that I'm not supposed to say, and then. Flashing that smile in the dimples. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, man, because I would go back doing this documentary. I was going back, listening to cassette tapes that would t- record my shows, the Fat Tuesday shows. And man, some of the things I said to gangbangs <laughs> and thugs, I don't know how I'm still living. I said some really, like, I thought you would have thought I was Suge Knight the way I was talking. You would have thought I was six, seven, you know. 250, you know, and I'm like, I'm cringing today at the stuff I said. Like, how did I get not get my ass beat? What it is what it tell me something that you said that now you're like, I, I don't know how I survived telling that joke. I was getting into it with someone and going back and forth, and I was like, hey man, don't let this Hollywood shit fool you. You know, I'm a nigga first. We can go. <laughs> you're saying said, this, you're saying this to a, to a to a gangbanger. Yeah. This, 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 you know, I was stupid. I was, I was taking my life in my own hands. I told you I was naive back then. I wouldn't dare do that today. <laughs> like, I wouldn't even think about doing that today. But I'm young out of St. Louis and didn't know any better. And then it's funny because during this documentary, uh, we have my security, who I had people not on personal security, but the guys I had uh, club security, you know. And, and they told me, they said, man, we saved your ass a lot of nights. It was cats, <laughs> you know. Like, hey, man, you better get your boy. You better get your boy. <laughs> so I appreciate, you know, the security team I had back then, man. And God, because, I mean, I, t- I used to talk so much shit, man. But that kind so of fearlessness much. is what separates a good comedian from a great comedian. It's funny you say that because um, that's one of the things Shaq would say when he came. He said, man. You don't care who it is. You're going to go after them. Celebrity, gangbanging, you don't care. And that's it, it, just, it, it, it's, not, it's not anything I think about. It's just, if I see something, 
I got to be true to the, to the moment. The comic gods have put this in my lap. I'm going to talk about you. I remember I talked about um, the very beautiful um, um, uh, the Eva, the, 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 mo- the top, top model. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Eve? What, who? Eve, Eve, yeah. Marcel, Marcel. Yeah, 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 I know who you're talking about. I was a, a fan of her when she was on Top Model. But she was at a show one time. Yeah, Eva Marcel. You know, Eva Marcel, yes. She barked back at me, and I had to, I, I don't care how fine you, I had to come back at you. What'd you, what'd you say? Yes, open shoes on, and them, them toes look like they were throwing gang signs. Them, them toes <laughs> It's looking like, you know, I was like, yo, no, you fine, but you know, what about them toes? <laughs> and models always have What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamine a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from tinderfoot tv campside media and iheart podcasts radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bad feet anyway. <laughs> but they're beautiful here, but the feet throw a gang sign. <laughs> and did, did she take that okay or did she? Oh, no, she didn't. She didn't like that at all. She didn't laugh at it. Boy, she, boy, she looked at me like I took my thing out in church. Like I got naked in church. I mean, she gave me an evil death stare. <laughs> I was like, damn, man, I know I, know I ain't got a shot. <laughs> I ain't had one before, but he's still fine. Who do, you, who do you think really changed their career because of Fat Tuesdays? Who, you know, they were going on one trajectory and, and this helped them propel to another level. I would say answering that particular question, I would say Nick Cannon. Because Nick Cannon wasn't even doing stand-up. He was rapping. And I met him in San Diego when I was hosting a show uh, that Outcast was, was headlining. And we were cracking on each other. And and But I thought the, the Bomb Squad, I think that was the name of his group at the time, him and this other, other guy, I think his name was Scott. can't remember. And uh, I said, man, you know, I got this night in, in, in L.A. It, it's, it's comedy, but a lot of music people be in there. Y'all should come up, come up and perform 
and, you know, and see what happens. So I let him come up and perform a few times. And then he got bit by the comedy book because I think after he, well, it's going to be in the doc, but uh, he tells the story, you know, way better than I do. But then that, that, that guy was on one path and then started doing stand up. And it took him on a whole different journey. It's an interesting trajectory. That's an interesting journey because I always thought stand up is one of the hardest things to do in entertainment. And you know that because you see stand ups branching off into acting and other things. You all, you almost never see, you know, actor become stand up, singer, rapper become stand up. It, it, it doesn't, it, it never goes that direction, right? Y'all can go outward into they, other things, but. They, they try. I mean, uh, I think stand up is easy when you're funny. Or as you're born with it, it's natural. It's just, you just got to discipline. You know, it's like being Kobe or being Michael Jordan or being LeBron, being blessed with a great athleticism. But then you got to train. You got to hone it in. You got to focus on that. And be, and that's how you become great. What is and, training? Wait, what does training as a comedian mean? You know, working on your, working on your craft, work, putting that work in is getting reps. You got to get reps on stage. And as many times you get on stage as possible, I don't care if it's a two people in the audience, I don't care if it's 2,000 people in the audience, getting those reps in and writing every day and studying the crap. I always tell young comics, whoever makes you laugh the most, that's your sensibility. That's, that's who you study. Study everybody, but the person that you're going to emotionally relate to is someone that makes you laugh the most and study their style. And just hit comedy clubs. Even if you're not going up, being in the audience and watching Chris Rock on stage or you know, Chappelle or Martin or, you know, those guys, you, you it's like a class and that's what it is. So you got to put your reps in, you got to study the crap and you got to find your it. You got to find that thing, that thing that's going to set you apart uh, from everybody else and your voice. What is your voice? What is your point of view? What are you, why are you saying the things that you're saying? If you're angry, why the hell are you angry? Just don't come on stage yelling at me. Tell me why you're angry. Then I think I accept it and then laugh at with you, not at you. So, so, so if Kobe wakes up and he, you know, drinks a smoothie, runs a mile, hits the weight room, you know, goes and gets a thousand shots up, you know, gets treatment, watches Dr. J or whatever, or Grizzlies footage. Now he's ready for the game. For you guys, that might be what? Wake up at 12. Uh, you know, watch it, you know, cause you were at the clubs last night and watch an old album, you know, or a new album, um, write a couple of pages, go to a club, get up, go to another club and get up, go to a third club and get up, then go to another club, watch some people like that. Is that sort of the equivalent for you? You forgot about, uh, uh, bangs and bitches. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's very important. It's good motivation to be funny. Uh, no, <laughs> no, you know what it is? Every comic is different. I can't speak for every comic. And we all have our own routines. We all have our own superstitions and things like that. And I'm, I'm a guy that I'm up early. I don't sleep. You know, Nick Cannon and I was talking about that. We don't sleep. And it's, it's unhealthy. But we sleep. You know, maybe Nick and I don't, you know, not together. But Nick and I, I sleep about four hours. I go all day on four hours. Nick said the same thing on his show. And 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 some comedians do sleep to noon. I happen to not like sleep. I know it's important. I know it's needed. 
And I know the difference in my set when I take a nap in the middle of the day, I know I have a completely different, a better set. And, but the routine is, you know, I usually, you know, try to eat a nice breakfast, try to eat brain foods on the day I'm having a show, like salmon or salmon if you black. Uh, salmon has, is a good brain food, broccoli, blueberries, things like that. So my brain can be alert. I'll drink coffee. Uh, I say the alcohol for later. And, you know, I try to get a workout in if I can and just go over bits, either, either look at my last set or look over new bits and tighten them up. And I like to smoke a cigar before my shows because I'm, because of the anxiety and, and the, the, the excitement and the nervousness of doing a show, a cigar mellows me out, you know? And then, then I drink some tequila, which is the upper, and I'm right back up again. So it did. So I'm back to where I was. And I don't know why I did all that unhealthy. <laughs> so, so you, you, so, but you're trying to go up three times a night, right? Well, there's some people who are just gym rats, like, like just gotta be on stage. You know, I'm not that guy in terms of gotta go up every night. I usually in the weekend, I'm doing five to six shows. I'm usually doing one show on Thursday, two on Friday, two on Saturday, one on Sunday. I'm on stage for at least an hour, 10 per show. So I've just done seven, eight hours worth of material. So when I come back to LA, you know, I should probably be trying to go up on stage and, and get 15 minutes here and 10 minutes there. But I'm just, at that point, I'm just trying to catch up on some rest or catch up on house, you know, chores or just relax, go out to dinner and, and, and be away from it because I got to leave in a day and a half anyway and do it all again. So I'm usually on the road 40 weekends a year, you know, about 300 shows a year. That's why COVID, the pandemic, I hate that we lost people, people lost jobs, lost businesses, but I, I didn't miss the humans <laughs> uh, from not doing shows. And because you got to realize, I, I always say it's saved my life because at my age, uh, being in my fives, uh, touring is stressful. Not complaining, just explain. Flying is, is stressful. Packing and unpacking is stressful. Getting up for press, although we love it, all that, getting anxiety to do press and all of that. Wondering if you're selling tickets or not. And then doing the shows. And then we drink for free. I do 300 shows a year just on the road. So I drink for free. So back then, I don't do it now, but I was doing at least four shots a show. You did four shots just to get up on stage? Yeah, between two shots and, and mixed drinks, you know, two shots. There's four shots a show. And then, and then as comedians, we, we have late nights, early flights, as Tony Rock puts it. We, we eat bad. We eat fast food. We eat comic club food. We eat on the run. We're not really digesting our food. You know, we're drinking. It's unhealthy. It's an unhealthy lifestyle. And so taking a year off or, you know, eight months off from not being on the road really gave my body a chance to kind of like, you know, snap back and kind of get back to where it was. And I lost 18 pounds and, and things like that. So it was, it was healthy for me to do that, to, to not be on the road. You know, it, it wasn't great financially, but thank God I was able to survive without any assistance. When you talk about doing five, six shows in three, four days, is it the same show each night? Is it a little different? Is it a lot different? 
Well, it, 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 every comic's different, again. Uh, it can be the same jokes, but it's never the same show. For me, it's never the same show. I may do the same jokes, but never in the same order, different segues, because we got to make it interesting for us. And we're not interested in a bit that comes off to the audience. So I'll mix stuff up or I'll dig a hole. I like digging a hole for, I like setting myself up to fail so I can win. What does that so mean? I'll go, go into a city and just trash the city. I'm a big sports guy. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. Uh, when Shaq and Kobe were with the Lakers, you know, during those years, that those championship runs, Sacramento Kings were on our ass. <laughs> like they were like that dude with Chris Webber and Mike Bibby and Bloody Bloody Bobby Jackson, those guys, they were handing it to us. And so I would go to Sacramento for some reason. They always booked me the week we just booked them. I mean, beat them in the, in, in, in the playoffs or a uh, 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 week after. And I would go in there with a Laker jersey on. And I would ring a cowbell because, you know, uh, Bill Jackson said all the, all the, all the wives in, in Sacramento wear cowbells around their necks. <laughs> and, and I had this Laker CD with Chick Hearn's voice on it with some of the greatest Laker moments on it. And I'd play that walking to the stage. And they would boo the hell out of me. Like, boo, like, like you would have thought you was at the Apollo. They would boo the shit out of me, man. And I liked that. And I was like, okay, now the, 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 the uh, pleasure of getting them back after they just booed me was a game for me. And so I go to other cities and trash the sports team if they suck and, and just to see if I can get the crowd back. So, so, you- so that's how I make it fun for me. So sometimes a set is the same jokes, but not in the same order. And actually every comedy show is different because none of these people will be in the same space and time ever again in life. Sure. While we're telling those jokes and the energies are always going to be different. I've seen guys do a first show in a stand ovation and then a second show, same city, same venue, same night, bomb. So wait, you, you, you're, 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 you're piling dirt on yourself just to make it more of a challenge. Yeah. Is it ever like, damn, my nipples off. <laughs> Is it ever like, damn, I, I really built a hole tonight. I really didn't fully dig all the way out of it tonight. Like, damn. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's oh, 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 been some nights where I wanted to go back to the room and slip my wrist. <laughs> I mean, I'm not making fun of, of, of people who have tried and attempted, but that's how you feel. When you bomb, when you bomb, it is the loneliest feeling on earth when you don't have a good set. Because you, you're on stage... And you're just eating ass. I mean, that's what we call it in, in comedy world. And and you, your mouth gets dry, like cotton mouth. Like I don't, I'm not a weed smoker, but I smoked before, and you get cotton mouth. And your whole three hour set that you have, you can't think of a joke. They like leave you. They 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 play you. And 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 then you don't joke. You don't stay looking for joke. You're picking up the mic stand. We got a joke. There's a joke on it. a joke under this glass somewhere. You know, I, I bombed so bad one time in Vegas. It was mostly white audience. And it's very long, long, long time ago. I was bombing so bad. I was like, well, what y'all want to talk about? Come on, get me riled up. Call me a nigga. Do something. <laughs> <laughs> and and my boy was in the back of the room he said, Did you just tell Rufus the white people? Man, that's how bad I was bombing. I wanted to get something to get me going. You know how, how how coaches get a technical on purpose to get their team riled up? 
That's what I was doing. I was trying to get myself a technical, so I could get riled up and like, her. Yo, it, it was an epic bomb, man. Epic. <laughs> epic. <laughs> the loneliest feeling on earth when you when you just, oh my God, it's so, it's so they look at you like, why, why are you wasting our time? It's, it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, I imagine Terrible. it's, it's got to be worse when you've created it. Like, if you just go out, you just don't have it that night. That's one thing. <laughs> but I started by fucking with the tiger. Now the tiger's eating my arm. If I had just left him alone, I might have been fine. I poked the bear. The bear got tired of it. You know? <laughs> bear like, <"Ugh." laughs> and, and, and that's what happens, man, unfortunately, man. But uh, you learn from it, you know? Give me your... Top five all-time stand-ups. Come on, man. That, that That is not a question you want to ask a comedian because, you know, <clears throat> I come in Mount Rushmore, excluding my brother who inspired me. You know, um, I would have to say Chappelle, Rock, Martin, um, Lenny Bruce, mm -hmm. Pryor. I mean, I know I'm going far. And uh, Whoopi Goldberg. Interesting, interesting. You know, she's, you know, she, her stand-up, man, uh, and she don't consider herself a stand-up, but her characters, the way she gets into characters, man, I used to love watching her, you know, on her Broadway shows, man, just get into character and lose the audience. It's prior-esque, you know? I, I remember that Smokey Fontaine, Why Am I Straight? Ooh, that was killing. I have it on laser disc. <laughs> Remember the big before they were DVDs? <laughs> there was a big ass laser disc, like the size of a ring light. The ring light, the size of a ring light, the big ones. I I got it on that. <clears throat> That's old. And I studied that, man. Last thing, man. What is your superpower? What is the thing you do better than other people that has led to the success that you've had? I would say make people laugh. I think making people laugh is such an incredible power and it's such an incredible gift because laughter purifies the air. Laughter, you know, um, heals pain. And that's what comedians do. We're more than just court jesters and buffoons and, and clowns. And we're healers, we're entertainers, we're teachers, we're storytellers, you know, especially black comedians, man. All the pain we go through, you know, it comes out on stage. And I say this a lot when it comes to black audiences. We need to laugh the most because we've been through the most. We laugh the hardest because we've been through the most. Especially black men, when we grow up, you know, we're told that men don't cry. Don't be a punk. Don't be a sissy. You know, man up. You little sissy, man up. And we hold all the emotions in. That's why Negroes walk around the hood mad. They ain't cry since they was four. They ain't cry since they was five. You know, so when we go to comedy clubs, you know, and we and we laugh, we laugh hard and it's loud. Those are emotions too. I don't want to hear that where women are more emotional than men. That's a lie. Women are taught to show their emotions. We're taught to suppress our emotions. But when it comes out, it comes out at sporting events. Comes out when you're playing domino. Big six to the board, boom, on your backs. It comes out at comic club. That's why we herk and jerk and ah, because that's really 
a lot of pain for years and years that we've been holding in, that we've been told not to let loose, not to show. So we got to find a different way to channel that pain and channel those tears and we channel it into laughter and because that's acceptable in a black community. But it's okay to show emotion. It's okay to cry. It's all right. That's why you go to a funeral, to a game maker funeral, and you know, you see, you know, see the homie walk up to and see his mom laying there in the casket. And he start crying, he break down like a futon, uh, 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 like like engine knock. Like, uh, uh. he puts a bad gas in an electric 225. Because uh, uh, uh. he ain't cried since he was five. He's been holding that shit in since he was five years old. And it's okay to cry when your mama laying there. So people ain't gonna clown you for that. But you know how many times this Negro wanted to cry but couldn't? So my superpower, I would say, is laughter to get, to get them laughter because who would have thought at six or seven years old, poking my finger in some grits would lead to a documentary about the resiliency these hungry black comedians who are going to be seen by any means necessary, who, when the smoke cleared and the dust settled in South Central Los Angeles, what came out of it was men and women being funny, wanting to just showcase, wanting that therapy. Who would have thought that by poking some grits? And I thank God that he, he put that assignment on me. And I Thank God that I was obedient enough and just wanted to give back and pay it forward. And uh, I pray that people take away from this the resiliency of comedians, our backstories, our origin stories, what we've been through. When all this, when all this is all fun and games, it's a, it's a serious gift. It's a great art. And I hope you enjoy this series and watch it over and over again. And I hope you tweet about it. I hope you Post about it, hope you IG about it, Facebook about it, TikTok about it, hope you be about it. Thanks so much to Guy Tory for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Tore Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. Maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editors, Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. 
Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.